0: This is an ABC podcast. Hello, it's Natasha Mitchell joining you from Nam or Melbourne and uh, really thrilled to be your new host on Big Ideas. Today on the show, the wonder of foresight. We homo sapiens have this unique ability to think about the future, to plan ahead. So how has that capacity shaped the course of human civilization in surprising ways. A really great discussion ahead. Like you, maybe, I've been a long-time listener to Big Ideas, often cooking dinner as Paul Barclay guided us through all sorts of thought-provoking terrain. Big Ideas is like a free university class, isn't it? And more than ever, I think we need this dedicated space for great minds to do deep thinking together. Paul Barclay has decided to hang up his headphones after 31 years at the ABC. I know you're going to miss him, but he will be having a whole lot of fun away from the deadlines. As a science journalist, I often think about the relationship between humans and other animals. What connects us? What separates us? And I remember getting up close and personal with a great ape at the San Diego Zoo just a thin sheet of glass between us. She was leaning up against the glass, looking very unimpressed with the passing crowds, giving me side-eye. And as I watched her, I was planning ahead, thinking about my next move. But locked in a cage... She was very much locked in the present moment. And that ability to imagine the future, to plot and plan ahead is distinctly human, and it's had a dramatic impact on our species' evolution. So today on Big Ideas, cognitive scientists Thomas Suddendorf, Jonathan Redshaw and Adam Bulley join award-winning novelist Ashley Hay to explore the mighty powerful skill of foresight. They're the co-authors of The Invention of Tomorrow, and we're kicking off with Thomas Suddendorf.
1: So foresight is basically our capacity to think about the future and to coordinate our actions currently in light of that. So if I were to say, cast your mind forward to the end of this session, what are you going to do next? And then I'll invite you to think about the possibility of joining us across the (laughs) road at the catchment upstairs. We're going to have pizza and can have drinks there afterwards. so you can now in your mind's eye visualize something that hopefully you will then also act on so that's foresight in action if you will and it has tremendous consequences in that it allows us to prepare for opportunities for threats well in advance before they're upon us and it allows us to plan and to shape the future to our own design or at least we try to do it to our own design of course there's not to be confused with clairvoyance we don't know what precisely will happen and in fact Much of the power of foresight derives from our awareness of its limits, Mm. of knowing when we don't know, which allows us to make a contingency plan. So we don't just plan for a sunny day on the weekend, but also have a backup plan for what are we going to do if it rains? Or we anticipate that we might forget something in the future, so we set ourselves a reminder. So a lot of our capacity of foresight really derives its power not just by being accurate, which often we are not, mm. but by actually being aware of what we can't and can do about the future.
2: There's that. I love that idea of the nuance and the complexity that sits underneath it because it does, you know, make a step away from that idea of just, oh, we can know and then we can make it happen, which mm. would be frankly lovely, but never mind. <laughs> the dictionary definition of foresight is the difference between the ability to predict what will happen or what might be needed this sort of idea of how what will happen and what's needed and not necessarily the same thing now thinking about this if we sort of have this as an innate human superpower and I love this i want to talk a little bit about the area of foresight and children if we're innately good at differentiating between our sense of what will happen and what will be needed is that something we have right there back at the beginning of childhood or you know, is it something that we have to kind of grow into?
3: Well, of, of course, just because something is innate doesn't necessarily mean that it's there right off the bat, right? So think about things like puberty, for instance. Yes, it's part of natural human maturation. It happens to all of us, but obviously it takes several years before before that happens. Um, and foresight is very much like that. So as any parent of a toddler will be able to tell you, um, it's not as if kids are just kind of, they just come out and they're able to predict what's going to happen next, right? It's the parents who, who are able to identify what could possibly go are wrong when the kids can't. So rather than thinking of it as this like innate thing that's there straight away, it's better to kind of think of it as this multi-component capacity that only gradually develops and you see different components gradually develop throughout childhood. And as those components gradually develop, you see children become more and more capable of, of acting with the future in mind and shaping the future.
2: I have to ask then, this makes it feel like it's a muscle that you can learn how to exercise in a sense? Are there ways of kind of helping yourself develop foresight? Not obviously when you're three years old. Is it a skill that can be concentrated on in that way?
1: We don't know is the, the short answer to that mm. one. And we have started to examine how children develop these capacities from very early on up mm. to uh, puberty and beyond. But what hasn't really been established is how you can facilitate it. But obviously, in giving children information, in correcting them, in teaching them at school, mm. we do give them a hand. When you cross the road, look both ways. <laughs> if you see a, you know, a crest, there might be a car appearing behind it. So we can give them clues, like information itself. But the capacity, more fundamentally, I don't think we really have a good handle on how that can be facilitated as yet.
2: So, Adam, I want to bring you in now and I want to take a step back for the audience now to the space where this work, the work that all of you do, exists, so to the discipline of evolutionary psychology. And I want to ask you for your kind of elevator explanation of of evolutionary psychology and also what drew you to work in this discipline in the first place.
4: Yeah, evolutionary psychology is a branch of psychology which basically recognises that human beings are biological systems, and we've been subject throughout our history to pressures in the form of natural selection, Mm -hmm. sexual selection, basically the the evolutionary processes that are responsible for all life on earth. And the mind is no exception to that. And so understanding different features of the human mind actually requires you to take a, a longer term view of not only how something works now in the present and what we can, how we can use it and, and this kind of thing, but also how it emerged over, you know, much v- uh, vaster spans of time. And in the book, we, we take evolutionary psychology kind of as one prong of a multifaceted approach to this problem, which you might call kind of cognitive science, which is, okay, we're drawing on anthropology, we're drawing on mm. developmental psychology, we look at the psychology of other animals, neuroscience, using all of these different disciplines and tools to really get at the question of, what is this ability for foresight where does it come from how does it work and then ultimately coming back to the question you just raised a moment ago how could you actually improve it and mm. use it better and, and harness its power basically
2: taking another step back we're going to get off the ground floor in a minute or maybe out of the basement <laughs> by now but no i do want to look at the kind of foundation of this work which thomas brings us back to you you earlier on in your career, worked on this fantastic thing that you called mental time travel, this lovely mechanism or capacity that humans have to travel back to the past through remembering and forward to the future through imagination. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of that work focusing on mental time travel and also how it led you on to this this particular area of foresight?
1: Sure. I've always been fascinated by why we are the peculiar creatures that Mm. we are and and why are we running the zoos and not baboons? (laughs) You know, what is it about us that got us into this position? And when examining that as a young man, I found this notion of thinking about the future and the past quite critical in that. And it is, talking of time travel, a long time ago, 30 years ago, I wrote this master's thesis when I coined that phrase, mental time travel and proposed that this ability to reconstruct past events and pre-construct, if you will, Mm -hmm. future events, draw on the same neurocognitive resources, that they are intimately linked in mind and brain, and that its emergence was a prime mover in human evolution. My uh, wonderful mentor, Mike Korbelis, who unfortunately passed away about a year ago, And I then managed to turn this into a paper, try to publish it and failed miserably. We got (laughs) rejected several times and only three years later, in 97, we finally got it published in a rather terrible journal, to be honest. But we got it out there and I thought that would be the end of it. But it turned out that somehow it it gained some traction and people Mm. started to talk about this more in developmental psychology, neuroscience, in economics, in archaeology and so on. And... It became a hot topic. In most of these disciplines, memory has been much more dominant. Mm. Memory research has gone back for a century or more with Ebbinghaus and other people, partly perhaps because memory is so easy to study. You show somebody something, you give them an experience, you manipulate a variable, and then you test whether they can recall it. And then you can measure how well do they do it. Whereas with prediction, that's much more difficult to do. So that might be one reason. Why, but ultimately, from an evolutionary perspective, the future is much more important than the past, surely, because mm. that's where the we're only going. thing you can do anything about, right? <laughs> and so, natural selection would get its teeth into that because that's where you can gain benefits for survival and reproduction.
2: You quote a Dutch behavioral scientist who talks about the four big questions that you have to ask about any characteristic or any trait how does it develop? How does it work? How does it evolve over time? So I wanted to start very quickly with the first two of those questions and to bring this back to you, Thomas, how does foresight develop over the span of a human life and how does it work?
1: Big questions. Um, (laughs) So I've been working on that for a few decades now, but I still have only a broad sketch available. But Basically, as John already indicated, young infants show little sign of traveling mentally in time, which is really not that surprising. They can't Mm. even travel in space, right? (laughs) I mean, they're, they're some of the most helpless creatures in the world, if you think about it. So there's little to show that they think about the future. So this must take time to develop this time machine, if you will. Toddlers have some competence, but also, as any parent will tell you, are very much focused on satisfying their current needs right here, right now. Even as they go to school, the early years, you will find that it's still the parents that need mm. to pack their lunches and, and bring the rain jacket, et cetera. So it, it's a slow developing capacity. There are some milestones in it, but also some gradual transitions. So maybe I should pivot a little bit and ask, answer the question of how it works mm. to, to give me a handle on, on how it develops. So one way which it works is you can just take a memory of a past episode and uh, supplanted into the future so the last time you went shopping at the supermarket gives you a good idea of what it will be like if you go back to the supermarket right simple but the future of course is if you want to track it you need to have a more creative system something that can uh, imagine situations that are not just a repetition of what went before but includes new events and to do that we need a much more flexible system if Last time I kicked the ball over the fence and I jumped over the fence to retrieve it, the neighbor's dog tried to bite me. Gives me a good guide that now that the ball is over there again, chances are it's going to bite me or try to bite me again. So at that juncture, rather than doing the same thing, nobody likes to be bitten, you go and can go cycle through alternatives. What else could I do? Maybe I could distract the dog, I could feed it some uh, sausage or throw the cat over it. um, You know, you could come up with all kinds of scenarios, more or less likely ones, and you evaluate these scenarios until you then hit upon something more reasonable and go and knock on the neighbor's door and just go with that one. So that option is better than the other options and that's part of what mental time travel allows you to do you can create multiple versions of the future and then select the one that is most suitable for your objectives Mm -hmm. in that sense it also gives you a some sense of free will if you will if you don't mind me putting it that way i mean philosophers will argue whether there is even such a thing but certainly intuitively the notion that we can have various options ahead of us and we choose one over another gives us that empowering idea that we are in the driver's seat yeah. and to just jump
3: in mm-hmm. with a maybe a, a little demonstration of how we might we might test this capacity in young children so a lot of our studies that we do are at the early cognitive development center at the university of queensland so mm-hmm. we work with with children from birth up until as thomas has mentioned around about puberty and one of the studies that i did with my during my PhD with the help of Thomas was very simple. And we were looking at this ability of children to think, conceive of multiple futures. So what I did was I I went to Bunnings. I bought a couple of PVC tubes and I joined these tubes together in such a way that the tube was shaped like an upside down Y. So one opening at the top, two exits at the bottom. Uh, You can drop a reward into the top of the tube and it can come out either side. So if you want to catch that reward, what do you do? Everyone in the audience surely immediately (laughs) knows the answer. But that turns out that's not necessarily what children will do. So when we gave this task to two to four-year-old children, two-year-olds and most of the three-year-olds, what they did instead of putting out two hands was they would just put out one hand. So they would cover one side or the other of the tube when they're trying to catch the ball. And so what that obviously means is that they're only going to catch the reward half of the time. Mm. So what we think is going on there is that they're clearly making a prediction. They're, they're seeing the immediate future in some sense. But what they're not doing perhaps is reflecting on the fact that their predictions can be wrong.
2: There are two um, options.
3: And when because your predictions can be wrong, that's, I think, where, we, where, where Thomas and I have argued, and Adam as well, that that, awareness that our predictions can be wrong, then we kind of infer that, well, the future, it's this branching tree of possibilities. And when it's a branching tree of possibilities, well, you'd better cover all of those <laughs> possibilities if, if you want to get the reward. Hedge your um, bets. And it's only by about four years of age that we see most children starting to, to hedge their bets and, and cover both sides of that tube apparatus I constructed.
2: Foresight and animals, it's always the thing that gets the most coverage. So we're going to do it now really quickly and then we're going to go back to the humans. I do want though to talk a little bit about what we do know about foresight, capacity for foresight in other species like dolphins, um, like some corvids, the great apes. I know Thomas, this intersects in some ways with your first book, The Gap, the science of what separates us from other animals. So what do we know and maybe more importantly, what don't we know about foresight in other creatures?
1: Big topic, of course, and people are having all kinds of uh, preconceived ideas about it. Empirically, maybe following on from John's example just then, uh, we give these kind of tests that we give to children, often also to animals. So in that first paper, we didn't just test two to four-year-old children, we also tested orangutans and chimpanzees. And they performed very similar to the two-year-olds. And we've since done that in various other contexts with monkeys and other other Mm. creatures. And they haven't as yet demonstrated this capacity for contingency planning, covering their bases like like children do so spontaneously at age four. But absence of evidence is not the same as evidence of absence. All you can do really is give animals the opportunity to show competence. And if they fail, that might be for the reason that you're interested in, it might be for other reasons. Mm -hmm. So that's why there's always an imbalance a little bit. You you can't really demonstrate absence if you think about it. If you say no animal can do analysis of variance or play chess or something, then most of us might assume that that is the case, but really you can't really prove it Mm -hmm. until you've given them the opportunity to do it, right? That's a terrible example of your essay, (laughs) but you, you, you get the drift, right? Animals, of course, have evolved means of tracking the future, because, in, as we said earlier, it's so important from a natural selection mm. perspective. So you find many animals are uh, acting in line with regularities in the environment, day-night cycle, seasonal variations and so on. That need not necessarily mean that the individuals, of course, think about the future. So Mm. hibernating animals or animals that store food for the winter do so even if they've never experienced the winter before, suggesting that there's an innate mechanism that all members of that species enact. So they don't necessarily individually have to think like, oh, it's going to be cold and I don't have any food, I better put some food aside. But some other mechanism that gets to do that. In fact, even single cell organisms can do this. So if you think of E. coli bacteria, the infamous ones, when they travel in your digestive system from a lactose-rich environment, which is one kind of sugar, they travel down into a maltose-rich environment, which is another kind of sugar. They switch on the gene for maltose digestion before they get into that part of your gut in a you know, foresight-directed yeah. way, if you will. But again, the individual doesn't have to make any such uh, conscious decisions. All you have to have is some variation, and those organisms that switch on the gene in the optimal time frame reproduce better than those that don't. Mm. And so over time, over many generations, the behavior adapts to the regularities in the environment. So that's why we see a multitude of these kind of behaviours that look fantastically complicated and fantastically nicely attuned with the environmental changes that are about to happen, but not necessarily based on the same mechanism as ours. Maybe one more thing. Obviously, animals are not just automatons, they don't just execute the behaviour, they learn. And associative learning often gets described as if it was a memory uh, Mm -hmm. system, but that too is future directed. So you probably have all heard about Pavlov's dog and and, and Skinner's uh, pigeons and so on. Pavlov's dog learns to salivate in response not just to food, but in response to Pavlov walking down the corridor or ringing a bell. Because every time he does, the food Mm. will arrive in the future. So it's a sort of memory, but actually it's future directed. The animal learns that something predicts the occurrence of something else and therefore engages in an preparatory response namely salivation which it prepares the animal for digestion mm. so this is a future directed way in which individual animals can learn the regularities of their particular environment rather than just on a species level but on an individual level
2: mm. and that again is so different from this sort of lovely idea of the different scenarios that we can build where we're thinking hmm it's getting cold so I should do I could do this or I could do that or but it's a really fascinating thing that we also as humans have a tendency to say I would like to endow that animal with foresight. I would like mm. to say they have this capacity. You have a lovely phrase in the book of describing rich and lean explanations in terms of what's actually yeah. going on, which is also interesting to think about in terms of how a lot of this work is interpretive. It can't be entirely, as you say, it can't be entirely proved
1: Yeah, um, yeah. somehow. We do have you know wishes as to how we want the world to be. And in some contexts, most of us, readily attribute really complex states to animals, like Mm. to our pets. Mm. We think that they are envious or anxious and they they want this and remember the other. And then in other contexts, many people treat animals as if they were mindless biomachines, like think of the food industry and, you know, Mm. depending on what animal or what context we're talking about. And so many of us vacillate between those. And in science, we shouldn't have these preconceptions, of course, but there too, you find that some people are more we call them the romantics, more inclined to go with the data. As soon as it suggests a higher mental ability, they're more like keen to mm-hmm. go with that. And then there are the, the killjoys that, that, or the skeptics <laughs> that, that always uh, emphasize the leaner interpretations, the simpler interpretations. And what we should do, of course, is we should be open to rich interpretations, but only once we have gone through the process of ruling out simpler, leaner interpretations, Mm -hmm. so that we gain some confidence.
4: Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned this kind of interpretive, uh, I think good good examples of this. There's plenty of anecdotes of animals, including our closest animal relatives, the chimpanzees, doing things that seem very far sighted. So uh, there's a a chimpanzee in a a (laughs) zoo in Sweden who would gather rocks in the morning and then later hurl those rocks at visiting uh, (laughs) zoo guests. So, okay, maybe on, on the face of it, oh, you know, he's, he's planning ahead, is very farsightful and so on. But that's not a controlled scientific study. That's, you know, that is an anecdote.
2: I want to come back to those four big questions and talk about the way foresight has evolved over time. So the title of the book, which I love, is The Invention of Tomorrow. I just wanted to unpack those words a little bit. Because one of the things that I think is interesting, maybe it's because we live in a world where there's rapid change all the time. We feel the constant need to be preparing for what might come next or not preparing. This idea that we're inventing tomorrow, that we have the capacity to do some of that work, Mm. is that a hard idea for people to grasp, Adam? Or is the point that it sort of has a kind of very exciting potential when they do?
4: I think the point is partly that when you're imagining the future, what you're really doing in essence is creating a simulation. You're you're using your Mm. imagination to cook something up. And it's tempting to treat our foresight and our imagined futures as, you know, as a, a truism. Okay, this is exactly what's going to happen and my plans will come to reality and so on. Of course, we know our plans get thwarted. And so when we talk about the invention of tomorrow, partly we're referring to the evolution of mm. the ability to actually access the fourth dimension in our mind's eye. We're also partly referring to this, this fact that, it's, that it, multiple branching possibilities lie ahead of us and it is partly up to us to decide which one we would rather be in and then move towards it. Yeah, so it's both of those things.
2: When did humans start practicing foresight, sort of start benefiting from it? Mm. Do we know how far back we're going in terms of that particular cognitive revolution?
1: There are clues in the archaeological record that suggest that the invention of tomorrow didn't happen overnight, if you don't (laughs) mind saying it like that. It happened over millions of years in a gradual way. Some of the earliest evidence, hard evidence literally is uh, that of stone tools and. Homo erectus, some 1.8 million years ago already, made bifacial hand axes that take a long time to make. They are symmetrical, they're extremely versatile, and there's evidence that the, these ancestors of ours were transporting these tools to for repeated use. Other animals make tools and use them, but once they're done, they typically throw them away, or maybe they return later, but mm. they don't carry them with them, whereas Homo erectus seems to have done so. So they were not made for one-time use. It takes you a long time to make it. A modern human takes what was that study recently that yeah, hundreds of hours. Yeah, they of, still of practice. Them, they're still nowhere near as good as the ones you find in the archaeological records. Right, yeah. it's quite a skill to acquire, and you wouldn't expend all that effort if you just then once use it to you know hit something over the head. So chances are that it was uh, repeatedly used. Yet that tool was the same for hundreds of thousands of years with only minor. Uh, modifications indicating that they haven't had quite that uh, innovative streak that Mm. characterizes us modern humans. So, you know, in modern civilizations, if if somebody has a tool that works, somebody will come up with a new version of it, put a stick on it, you know, make it a bit finer or come up with some other way of modifying it. We don't really see that so much, at least in in the lithic, that is the stone tool evidence. But who knows, they might have had more progress in technologies that didn't last the time, like in bamboo or whatever other tools they might have used. So there's one, one actually a line of evidence. Then at around 400,000 years, plus or minus 100,000 years, we got new evidence that really where the stone tools change, where they show evidence of compound tools for the first time. So this is associated with a creature called Homo heidelbergensis that lived around that time. And they made tools for the first time by not just stripping things away, like stripping uh, bark of a a piece of wood, but instead adding things to it. So they made, for example, stone-tipped spears. So for that, you need the spear, you need the stone at the top, and then you need some kind of Mm. hafting agent. So this is quite a complex thing that requires a bit of planning to to produce and then would be put into action only later on for some hunt down the track. That's a milestone. And Mm. around that time, we also see the first evidence of regular use of fire, which I think also Mm. is a critical part of uh, our evolutionary past. And then just to cut to the big steps here, there's another big step around 140,000 years ago, which is associated with us, but also with Neanderthals, where we see the beginnings of more communications uh, associated perhaps with the future. Like, for example, ornaments that were being worn, first signs of burials. Maybe people were starting to think beyond an individual's Mm. lifetime. And only later still, in the last few tens of thousands of years, have we seen signs of tracking time, like in mm. calendars and the like. So those are some of the big milestones in our archaeological yeah, history. And as you talked about,
4: you know, interpretation earlier, the archaeological record is a great example of where you have to apply that lens. It's, it's really <laughs> detective work, you know, and this is, in the book, we, we mark certain things as speculative, mm-hmm. we try to give a, an account of how this, this ability might have evolved. Yeah with the proviso that it's it's still tentative, it's not figured out. Still an open question, really, how this remarkable ability mm-hmm. came about in the first place and, and how it evolved. And, of course, as Thomas mentioned, what we have
3: to rely on is the hard evidence, literally, mm. right? So that the evidence that fossilises. So we find stone tools, but who knows, there might have been all sorts of other tools mm. that were used at certain periods during our evolutionary history that just didn't, didn't leave any remnants just because they de- decomposed, right? Which I think enables us to get onto one of... Perhaps the great overlooked innovations during human evolution, which was the humble bag. Mm-hmm. So maybe Thomas has been pushing this one for a yeah. while. So maybe I'll <laughs> let I'll let Thomas speak about all the right.
1: importance of bags. So mobile containers. Thinking about human evolution, it's dominated by men, right? And there's man, the hunter, and it's all about fire and you know weapons and the like. But the humble bag is probably much more important than people give him credit for. Bags allow you to retain not just resources, but also tools themselves. So they're a very powerful tool to enhance preparation. So if you're walking around with a survival kit, if you will, then you create a very different situation than if you only have your own two hands to deal with. So I think mobile containers were very important. When Michelle Langley and I looked at the archaeological evidence, the earliest one reaches back to around 100,000 years ago, which is pretty fine in yeah. the past, but as John was pointing out, this probably goes back much further, like baby slings and the like. Mm. There might be hundreds of thousands of years earlier, but we wouldn't know because those things don't really tend to survive. But yeah, th- th- this is an example of an innovation, which itself is a future-directed thing. Thinking ahead, this is something I might need in the future. Here's a solution to that. Problem and uh, that enhances my carrying capacity, and then allows me in turn to prepare for the future more effectively. Because next time I come across, say, obsidian or, or some other great raw material, if there is no need, then in the past you would just have to mm. walk on. But now you can go like, "Wow, I might as well make use of that. Either I sit down and make some tools and put them in my my mobile container." Or I take the raw material itself and we'll do it back at the home camp. Mm. But it allows you to harness the potential of your environment much more effectively.
2: And that completely remakes homonym's relationship with the planet, doesn't it? Some of the things that are developed, some of the inventions or the innovations that have been developed through the application of foresight are what you call the prime movers of human evolution, the plows, the weapons... The maps, like these are all really interesting, specific objects to think about in terms of how homonyms through the various ones that get us to Homo sapiens are just separating themselves slightly, are just differentiating themselves a little bit. It's really fascinating. And I think maybe it segues really neatly with another thing that you describe and talk a lot about in the book called cultural evolution. Now I'm aware that's a phrase we probably need to unpack a bit. So Thomas, can I bring this to you? What is cultural evolution in this context in the first place? And how does it dovetail with foresight so importantly?
1: Sure. So, In addition to biological uh, inheritance, we have cultural inheritance, obviously. The clothes you wear, the songs you sing, the tools we have come from our ancestors and, and we share them with one another and we benefit from them. So in a way, cultural evolution refers to this second inheritance system and it's prefixed basically on foresight, I think. We see some cultural evidence of social learning in other animals, so so chimpanzees have various traits that they seem to maintain by copying each other. But what humans can do, of course, is they can teach each other deliberately because they know that this will be handy for you in the future. And what they can teach are, amongst other things, innovations, new new solutions to problems. And we've had a few examples of that Mm. in this conversation already. When you, when you think about the notion of innovation, it typically is associated with creativity and innovators and so on. But really, at the core of it is the capacity to recognize the future utility of something. Mm. So something that is useful, not just now, to, to solve the present problem. Like animals might use a tool and they once they're done, they tend to just leave it. Mm. Whereas what we do is we recognize, oh, this will be handy again tomorrow. And this might be handy for my friends as well. And what if we could make it a bit more efficient or sharper? That would be even better still. So recognizing the future utility is absolutely critical, I think. And there are plenty of examples in the, in the history where the failure to recognize that kind of utility actually uh, demonstrates its power. So, for example, the steam engine you might think of is associated with the industrialization, but actually was already on this planet over 2,000 years ago. And the person inventing it, hero, only used it as a party trick, basically. <laughs> so if, if somebody would have recognized the utility of that invention, you know, the, for better or worse, the Industrial Revolution m- might have happened much earlier indeed. So recognizing that is much more critical than actually the invention per se, or the, the coming up with the solutions.
4: Yeah, and then the kind of other aspect of cultural evolution, where foresight's really imperative, is in passing on the innovations to other people. The passing on itself is also far sightful in often because you're teaching somebody something. And teaching in essence is about recognizing some knowledge or skill that someone currently lacks that they may need in the future and then setting about passing on that informational skill to them now So that in that future, they will be equipped to deal with some problem.
2: And then you get to this lovely space, which, you know, as a storyteller is one I'm particularly fond of, of the importance of this connection and this collaboration and this exchange, which is another important part of this cultural evolution. Mm. So, So these two things start to work together and we get this, what you call beautifully, this dynamic feedback loop between foresight and culture And John, I wanted to ask you if you could talk about the way this changed and strengthened through the evolution of different species of homonyms Mm -hmm. as we get to the arrival of us, the Homo sapiens, and Mm -hmm. our dominance, not just across the spectrum of available species of homonyms, but... Across a so, whole lot of other yes. things as well.
3: So I think not to not to so bang on about bags too much, but I think <laughs> I think that the bag is a fantastic example of this this feedback loop in action that yeah. probably was in place before our species. No hard evidence yet, but probably in place before us and Neanderthals. Because Bags, as Thomas mentioned, are a four-sided invention. You carry a bag because you recognise you need things in the future. But then as soon as you have a bag in your environment, there are now all of these new pressures to think better about the future, mm. to think about what else you might need in the future and to think about how best to use this resource, which is now in a part of my environment. It's a brand new selective pressure, right? And if we move beyond the Ice Age, well, before the Ice Age, so if you look at human cultures, what you'll find almost universally, perhaps even universally, is is some form of oral calendar, right? So an idea that there are cycles that occur in nature, yearly cycles, for instance, and recognition of what tends to predict what. So when the stringy bark is in flower, that's when it's a good time to start fishing, right? And if you look beyond the ice age you start to see remnants of all of all over the world of our species homo sapiens leaving these signs of physical mm. calendars. So the most famous that everyone would have heard of is Stonehenge. So Stonehenge is essentially a physical calendar that's tracking, you know, the passage of the sun over mm-hmm. the year. And you see these all over, over the planet, um, including in Victoria, actually. There's there's one called uh, Wordy Yuang. Mm-hmm. But again, a calendar is something where, well, you recognise it's really difficult to predict what's going to happen at what particular time in the future. But as soon as I have a physical instantiation, I'm able to kind of see, okay, the sun sets here today, it's going to set here tomorrow, it's going to set here the next day, it's going to set here the next day. And as soon as you've got a record of the year, what happens over the year, you can begin to agree with other people on what to do when, Mm. right? You can say, all right, let's meet up at the next equinox instead of let's, I'll see you next time, right? It's a much better, much better to have a plan when you have kind of this, this kind of concrete definition of what time is.
2: The whole section on time and the ways that we've invented to track time forwards and backwards is I'm coming back to if we don't run out of time, but (laughs) Um, I want to come right into the brain for a second. I want to think about our brains. You described them beautifully as wet and squishy three-pound lumps of cells, which I liked <laughs> very much. Now, Adam, I know you've done some work on a recent shift, and this is, again, psychology but also neuroscience, from this idea of the brain as something reactive, so it is told that it's seeing something and it processes right. that information and it goes, yes, great, that's a you know bird on a rock, to a, an organ that actually has to be much more proactive so an organ that to let us live now is actually constantly forecasting what we are going to see, yeah. you know, what is coming next. Can you talk to us a little bit about just this constant looking forward yeah. that our brains have to do to orient us in now?
4: And to make it maybe more visceral, if you imagine you wait until you've seen a snake and you watch it attack you and then you react, well, that's not exactly the best policy, right? It's, it's actually much more efficient and the brain is in the business of doing this, making predictions on the basis of incoming sensory signals in order to just basically stay one step ahead. For a long time in neuroscience, as you already mentioned, it was thought that, okay, you've got sensory systems, you've got eyes and ears and you can touch things and what you're doing is you're kind of sucking in information about the world around you and using that to come up with a kind of picture in your brain Mm. about what the world is like and then acting upon that picture. But what you're probably is more accurately doing is your, your brain is actively anticipating the kind of signals that it's going to receive in order to maximally and most efficiently process the incoming sensory signals. So it doesn't have to necessarily build an entire new environment in every moment based on the sensory input. Instead, I already know I'm in this room and I've got the, the kind of visual picture. I'm processing more the things that change. So if something surprising happens then that's registered much more vividly in the brain and that's used as a very efficient way to maintain a kind of model of the environment which then you can act upon. And there's been a lot of fascinating work on on essentially what makes prediction so integral to brain function. It's not only in the visual system but it's also to do any kind of action like catching a ball. Your brain has to predict a precise trajectory in advance in order to move your hand to the right place at the right time. And that kind of prediction that's taking place in the brain there, it scales up. You know, you can predict in the next few milliseconds what's going to happen. It's subconscious. It's happening kind of deep in the brain, all the way up to, you know, what am I going to have for dinner tomorrow night, to what's going to happen in my retirement, what's going to happen to my descendants, and so on into the, you know, the end of the universe or something. And it's, (laughs) it's really quite remarkable that that same clump of cells is able to, make predictions across all those different time scales, uh, across that kind of mental timeline. Three Uh, pound
2: wet and squishy, as you said. (laughs) You've also done some work on the concept of delayed gratification, which some of us tend to think about purely in the context of cookie monster, trying to learn how to resist all those cookies, (laughs) but which also intersects with foresight. Can you tell us a little bit about the role and the power of delayed gratification?
4: Many people may have heard of the marshmallow experiments where you put a child in front of a marshmallow and you say, if you can resist eating this one now, I'll give you two when I come back later. What was kind of became a bit of a cottage industry in psychology for a long time was the idea that if you wait for the second marshmallow, that's a good thing. Because what that does is it predicts many later life successes because it shows that you're capable of reining in your immediate Mm. impulses and your urges to benefit your future self. And there is some truth to that. I mean, in in order for us to organize our lives, we do have to often do things that cost us now in order to benefit us down the track. Recognizing our own limits of our ability to travel mentally in time unlocks new tools that you can use to basically achieve goals that you otherwise wouldn't. What I will say just to close the loop on, on the delayed gratification part of the puzzle is that while psychologists for a long time thought, okay, this is you know, a fantastic ability and really important. And while it is, it's also uh, has its own downsides and costs because the future is very uncertain. The experimenter won't always come back with the second marshmallow, right? <laughs> and that's true in in the laboratory when you're doing an experiment with children, but it's also true in life in general. That's why people require interest mm. uh, in order to, to save money, partly because... Basically, if you wait for something in the future, you may not get it. It might disappear or you might not be around to get it because, Mm -hmm. you know, you might die before the the thing you've been waiting for actually materializes. Before
2: the next marshmallow comes.
4: (laughs) Exactly. It's a terrible proposition. You never know. The future is is deeply uncertain and so there's a kind of deep-seated logic to getting what you can now. Foresight is really critical in basically deciding whether it is better to wait or not. You can be farsighted in your choice to eat the the cookies for dessert, and you can ju- you can justify that. I've <laughs> now I've said it. Yeah,
2: I want to step a little bit laterally from the idea of delay back to the idea of time and this idea that humans are maybe the only species to have discovered time, the fourth dimension. And John, I wanted to come back to something you mentioned just briefly before and began to talk a little bit about, which are some of the different devices and approaches that we've invented clocks, calendars, cycles. We know that we we have these things, you know, we've also invented writing, we've Mm -hmm. invented money, we've got all these tools that we use to track things and communicate things. Is there a price for our dependence on the tools that we use for mental time travel?
3: Perhaps the most famous philosopher of all, Socrates, had something to say about this. So he famously never wrote down a word of his own. It was his students who always who wrote what he had to say. And one of the things that he supposedly said that one of his students wrote down was that don't learn writing because <laughs> writing, it will implant forgetfulness in your soul because you'll start relying on external marks instead of uh, internal memory. Now, I think... Socrates was right about many things. I'm not sure many people would agree that he was on the money there. I think, I think we can say that writing hasn't led to, you know, the downfall of society and complete chaos everywhere. But you know, these days we have very similar concerns about the offloading that we all do, right? So you carry a smartphone mm. around in your pocket. Is it really a good idea that you're using that thing to navigate everywhere when you, when you drive? What happens if you don't have it one day and you have to find your way around Brisbane? Mm. You might get lost, right? So when people speak about the downside of using these tools, that's generally what they refer to, right? The idea that perhaps, you know, by becoming over-dependent on the use of offloading tools, then, you know, you might kind of forget how to use the more natural machinery that we have that has traditionally solved these yeah. sorts I mean, of problems. A,
4: like a calendar is a good example. How many people use a calendar on their day-to-day life? Imagine you, you, I deleted all of your calendars right now, mm. and then what would the outcome be, right? So for me, it would be absolutely catastrophic. Like basically my <laughs> entire life is kind of organized around this, this calendar. But what you're doing in that case is, is offloading thoughts and ideas and intentions mm. into a, an external source, kind of like how you would use a bag to hold tools. Mm. But what you're doing in this case is using an external tool to keep all the thoughts about the future, multiple possible futures that you have to keep.
2: Don't you uh, think it would just be... The arrival of amazing free time. (laughs)
4: All
2: right, we're getting into some interesting space here and I want to stay a little bit more with the idea of where mind meets matter, which is, you know, part of this sort of offloading process. It comes back to what you mentioned at the beginning, Thomas, when we were talking about your early work on mental time travel and the fact that we use the same machinery to travel both backwards and forwards in time to remember on the one hand and imagine on the other. Are there particular impacts or potentials of using the same machinery to move in both directions? Uh,
1: I would say so, yes. Various lines of evidence now suggest that really we do use the same part of the brain for this, because if you've got lesions to uh, the hippocampus, for example, you might get amnesia, but you Mm. also then will be unable to predict what's going to happen in the future and can't envisage that. There are various lines of evidence of that sort. Now... I told you at the beginning that I think that the main benefit of this capacity lies in the future, because that's where you can increase your likelihood of surviving and, and reproducing. When you apply this creative system to the past, however, you might find that you do so creatively as well. Mm. And that is, of course, true, right? Our <laughs> memory system, our episodic memories are notoriously flawed. Which is a bit of a problem when you have to rely on eyewitnesses in courts, and so many times we have to rely on what somebody else has experienced. And unfortunately, even when they're really confident, they might still be wrong. There's lots of evidence to suggest that we are all rather suggestible. That, you know, if you recount an event, you might embellish it just a wee bit, and then next time you recount it, you might not really know anymore which one was the embellished bit and which one was the real bit. Um, <laughs> so it always makes you look better. Well. <laughs> yeah. it, it Accidentally, yeah. purely yeah, accidentally, worked, yeah. what um, you know, we, we change our memory partly to justify our current attitudes or make ourselves appear better than we actually are and so on. Psychologists have documented these errors uh, and the suggestibility of memory, and it's always been a bit of a conundrum as to why that would be so, because if evolution really wanted a reliable system, you would expect it to do much better than in fact it does. <laughs> but this makes a lot more sense once you take this mental time travel perspective, because the creativity that you require to conceive of multiple versions of the future is one where you have basic elements that you combine and recombine. And when you do that for the past, you might have stored the basic essence of what has occurred, but the details you have to reconstruct. And if there's new information that has come in, you might not know where the source of that information is, and you might add that to the reconstruction. And suddenly you are reporting details that you weren't actually Private to, you, but mm. that you have heard about post hoc.
2: I want to stay in the future a little bit more. Adam, you're currently um, at the Brain and Mind Centre in Sydney, but and you're also d- affiliated with um, the Department of Psychology in Harvard. And alongside the invention of tomorrow, I was interested by the work you're doing in humans' capacity to imagine the future and to shape what they're doing now accordingly. And this is called future cognition or prospection. Now, as a novelist, and for that matter, as a mother, I can see great appeal in this as a future line of inquiry. Can you tell me why it's such an important area of research and how it might impact really different disciplines like psychology and neuroscience, but also artificial intelligence or philosophy?
4: Right. That concept of prospection or prospective psychology is a kind of umbrella term that captures the wide range of future-directed processes that take place in in the mind and brain. Episodic foresight, which we've been talking about today, itself is not just one ability. It's really uh, comprised of multiple interacting capacities that all come together to enable us access to what might happen in the future. So just one example In order to predict what might happen if you, for example, threw the cat over the fence to try and (laughs) distract the dog, you need to have some ability to anticipate the mind of another person, namely your neighbor when you go and tell him that that's what you've done. Mm -hmm. And so in that case, what you're drawing on is not just the predictive ability, but also your your ability to create a a theory of someone else's mind Mm -hmm. and embed that into, into your imagination. That's just an example of where foresight is actually... It's sort of comprised of interacting cognitive capacities that come together. And in recent years, it's become this this idea of prospection in psychology, that prediction and and future-oriented thinking has become extremely popular, not just in psychology, but in places like, as you just Mm -hmm. mentioned, artificial intelligence, where many of the uh, most powerful AI systems that exist today have prediction really at their core, because they do things like, for example, use reinforcement learning which relies on making predictions about the amount of reward or benefit that you would gain if you took certain courses of action and then learning from the discrepancy. And so prediction is embedded in in AI systems, but it's also being studied in philosophy. We mentioned free will earlier Mm. because our sense of free will ultimately stems from this ability to foresee the future as a place where multiple branching opportunities exist and we have to choose one or the other.
2: No matter where we are these days, we end up in the Anthropocene, there's no getting away from it. So I'm going to bring us there now. And I want to come into this question with a quote that you include from Richard Feynman who wrote in 1955, we are the very beginning of time for the human race. There are tens of thousands of years in the future. Our responsibility is to do what we can, learn what we can, improve the solutions and pass them on. Now you have this great quote as the epigraph at the top of the final chapter in the book, which is called Our Slice of Time. How do Feynman's ideas and sentiments and senses of responsibility resonate? It's nearly 70 years since he wrote those sentences. How do they resonate as we navigate this Anthropocene era that Foresight has brought us into Mm. and that hopefully we are going to be able to transcend
1: Well, there are many challenges ahead, and uh, we have transformed the planet, for better or worse, and we are aware of the consequences of our actions in a way that we hadn't been in previous generations. And so we can make these predictions, and now, once we do know what the consequences of our actions are, we're morally responsible, I think, and we need to take that into account. And there are plenty of people on the planet that do want to create a better world that want to change some of the ways that are now predicted to lead to more mayhem than needs to occur. So there are some signs of hope and of optimism. I mean, whatever you might argue about the particulars of agreements like the Paris Agreement and so on, but we are, as a global population, getting together and making decisions together to address some of these problems. I think that leads
2: perfectly to the very last thing that I want to quote from the book, which as someone who spends a lot of time thinking about existential risk in the future, was something I was incredibly grateful for. One line leapt out, which was that by some estimates, around four-fifths of the world's population are thought to hold unrealistic, optimistic beliefs about the future. Now, I know that you can read that as we're all Pollyanna and head in the sand people, but I want to think about that a slightly different way that maybe that optimism, you know, maybe there's a usefulness in keeping those rose-coloured glasses nearby and maybe foresight somehow intersects with this sense of optimism.
4: It just comes to the broader point about recognising the strengths and limits of our own foresight. Yes, optimism is a kind of bias. There's problems with it. It can lead to all kinds of problems where we get wrapped up in some future that doesn't turn out the way we might have hoped. But it can also be incredibly powerful. And so just broadly, one of the key messages in the book is that Coming to terms and understanding our ability for mental time travel gives us an opportunity to shape the future and you know, more towards something positive because we're able to basically use this tool, recognise its strengths and limits and then yeah. put it to work to do something good.
0: Cognitive scientists Thomas Suddendorf, Jonathan Redshaw and Adam Bully have written a book together, The Invention of Tomorrow. They were speaking with Ashley Hay, award-winning novelist and former editor of the Griffith Review. And if you enjoyed this talk, you might imagine that you will like other Big Ideas programs in the future. So follow us on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to let the Big Ideas team know about uh, great talks or forums or panel discussions coming up this year across Australia, we would really love to hear from you. Email us at Ideas underscore rn at abc.net.au. That's Ideas underscore rn at abc.net.au. I'm Natasha Mitchell. I'll catch you next time. Bye.